0: Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin.
1: There is no place, absolutely no place for these individuals to go. The province and the city know that there is no shelter available for these individuals. How much
2: money will you
1: spend on this? How much taxpayers' dollars will you spend on continued
2: street sweeps knowing there is no housing available?
0: All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith, and we start today with that showdown on Hastings Street. The city's plan to remove tents and structures from the downtown east side encampment. You heard the voices there of activists Vince Tau, Kayla okay, Rain, calling for resistance to the forced removal of tents and structures. They say there's no alternative housing being offered. Where are people supposed to go? The situation in the neighborhood, though, hazardous, police saying assaults, sexual assaults, crime, all up in the neighbourhood. Is it time for the tents to go? We've got both sides of it here for you this morning. First, let's start with Sean Orr, political columnist, Scout Magazine. Sean is a former Vancouver City Council candidate. I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Hey, Sean, thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me. Okay, Sean, what do you think of the situation in this, in this, this, on the downtown east side in Hastings Street right now in this leaked plan for the city to remove tents and structures? I think it should be very concerning to uh, all citizens of Vancouver the kind of overreach
1: um, that, that's happening. It's uh, Reading the plans, it sounds like a military-style sort of operation. Um, such an operation was recently uh, done in Toronto, and the city ombudsman there, Condemned that um, as a breach of, of not only charter rights but um, basic human rights. Uh, the UN uh, Rapporteur for Housing has also criticized such approaches. Um, and I echo what Vince Tao is saying: there is nowhere for for these people to go. It's interesting also that right off the bat you you instantly tied uh, crime into into the situation um and, and just because Vancouver police say crime is up doesn't make it so um in fact there's a recent you don't believe you don't killing.
0: believe crime is up da- you no, don't believe well, crime I mean, is up down there? Have a- down there has people been shot down there has been
1: it's not a matter of belief. I mean, um, yes, crime happens. There is crime. But it's being sensationalized by the media. CKNW is a big part of that oh, um, sensationalization. Oh. And it, it is. I mean, I mean, it, 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 come on. I mean, it gets you. It gets you clicks. It gets you listens. Right. So, um, but if you the guy who the was shot? What about
0: the guy who was shot in the? What about the guy who was shot down there with a crossbow? Who's sensationalizing that'm uh, so i yeah, I'm
1: that. not denying that I, I'm not saying there's no crime I'm saying that to say that oh. crime is up without without um, any statistical backing such is not is,
0: is well, let, me, well, because, let me give because, you some of the let me give let you me some of the statistics statistics that show
1: that crime is um, down there's just been a report by um, Robert Gordon and Martin Anderson of uh, SSU showing that the baseline is going down for violent crime in cities
0: Sean. Let me give you a couple of statistics here for you. Okay, so the Atira Women's Resource Society, they did a survey of 68 women down in that encampment. They asked them if they had been victims of sexual assault, sexual violence, 100%. It was 68 out of 68. Every single woman they interviewed down there said they'd been a victim of violence and sexual assault. Are you, are you yeah, saying it's, this it's, Women's it's, Resource it's, Society is just making that up? Uh, I'm, I, I haven't seen that um, that
1: statistic, but yeah, no, I mean, this is a, this is... This is the nature of having people living in tents. It's it's not an ideal situation. No one is saying that it's an ideal situation. No one is is saying that. But what we're saying is that um, what what this does by removing people from tents with force, with a a massive team of city engineers and police backing where the public is not even allowed to witness, is going to just create further trauma down the line. So why why would you go in with guns blazing to women in tents instead of being sexually abused by men? And marking a male police force with guns. Is that gonna help things? No. It's gonna further re traumatize people. And what 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 do you do when people are traumatized? You get into drugs, you get into in, into other situations. And and it's an endless cycle it's an endless loop, right? That's, that's, well, what, that's I, I would you know, that's sug- why, that's I would suggest. I would
0: suggest to you Sean, Sean, there's a lot of trauma going down there already. Let's play a couple of clips here and get your reaction to it. So let's, let's have a listen to the mayor here. So this was a, a leaked, a series of leaked documents showing this plan to remove tents and structures, and the city doesn't seem to be denying it. In fact, they appear to be getting ready to go forward with this. Let's have a listen to Vancouver Mayor Ken Sim. I'll get your, your thoughts. Let's listen.
3: We're going to continue what we're doing. We are looking for empathetic solutions and um, providing people with uh, housing, options um, as we look to decamp uh, Hastings, but make no mistake about it, large entrenched encampments are not an acceptable model going forward.
0: I can't see how anyone would think that this is an acceptable situation, Sean. Your thoughts?
1: Um, Yeah, I I mean, empathetic approach, if you read the actual documents, it's saying it's actually going against that, and it's also going against the city's memorandum of understanding that they signed with the province to have housing uh, already in place. Um, So they're going against that and they're saying uh, it doesn't matter. We don't care if there's no housing in place. That's not, that's not empathetic at all. Um, And a lot of this, and a lot of the housing, the so-called housing that is being uh, forced upon uh, these, these tenters uh, is inadequate. So we need, we need to definitely define what adequate is and we need to let, um, the campers themselves just define what adequate. If it's adequate uh, there... for them, because these shelter spaces, Are there... do you want to do you want to do you want to warehouse people. I mean, you're having Bill Tellman on after me, and he was against supportive housing uh, on Arbutus and AIDS. And one of his one of his quotes was, "We, we shouldn't be warehousing people, you know." But but with, that's exactly what we'd be doing here by forcing people into gymnasiums, rat infested uh, SROs, you know, where. Where where the sprinklers are turned off and 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 there's a fire and and, and people die and again trauma is is, is created. There have been fires. Right? I mean, these, there these, have been these fire enterers, There have been pl- no, of, there's Hang there's on, no Sean. Effort, let me. Yeah.
0: Sorry.
1: There's yeah, there's be no let me. Let me have it. Let me have F- a turn. Uh, let me
0: adequate. Let me get a question into you, okay? There have been lots of fires down there in that situ down in that encampment. We've seen plenty of burning tents. We've seen lots of fires down there. uh... We've seen a, a lot of. uh fuel tanks down there that are potentially very hazardous it's been 9 months since the city's fire chief ordered the structures to be taken down because of a fire if there was a tragic fire that set fire to an SRO again down there whose fault would it be um, um i Sorry, I don't understand the. If there was no, if there was a
1: fire in an SRO.
0: Well, I mean, fault, is it, it, it? Yeah, like whose fault? Like you're saying that don't don't move people along, don't remove the structures, don't remove the tents. If there's a terrible fire down there, then whose fault is it? Is it the fault of this of the people who are trying to resist moving along?
1: Uh, I, I'm I'm still I still don't understand. Yeah, um, but at um, it, it, one <laughs> point that you brought up was the propane tanks and. Actually, one yeah. of Van du's, uh one of Van du's, uh, in their uh, contract that they had with the city that the ABC just outright canceled canceled. I mean, out of vindictiveness, if one can only presume was was to was to monitor and remove those propane tanks. Um, so interesting that they canceled the vendue contract and then instantly you, you find these propane tanks. But um, yeah, I mean, if your if your reaction is to be like you see uh, a fire in a tent and not realize that there's a human in that tent you know like I, uh, yeah. this is this is what's concerning like yeah of course th- th- that that's concerning and fire is concerning but we have to understand that this is this is a product of all of our policy responses up until this point we've chased these people around from campment to a campman, from oppenheimer to strathcona to crab park there's nowhere for them to go so th- this is this is policy yeah. this isn't by blaming the people that the that the policy is affecting do you know what I mean? That's kind of that's kind of a, uh, a a psyops in a sense, right? Like it's kind of weird that like you know to blame the people in okay. in their predicament, right? Because this is this is decades of failed policy.
0: Sean, thank you for coming on this morning. I appreciate it. Hey, thanks, Mike. Okay. Sean Orr, Scout Magazine. He ran for Vancouver City Council. Check him with Bill Thielman. Bill is a communications consultant. He also ran for Vancouver City Council in the last election. He believes the tenson structure should be removed. Bill Thielman, I know you're listening to that interview. What did you think?
3: Well, I was very unimpressed. And, you know, really what we've got here is a situation where, as uh, Vancouver Fire Chief Karen Fry said in July of last year, it was of grave concern, deep concern that a fire or fires along there could not only kill people in the tents and destroy uh, tents there, but actually catch multiple buildings, which are housing people in SROs right now who need housing. Uh, Hundreds of of units of housing endangered there. And nothing has happened much. I mean, there's some tents have been taken down. So it's about time that uh, City Council and Mayor Ken Sim took some action for the 10%, uh, 11% almost tax increase. Taxpayers like myself are paying and and, uh, a situation which everybody said was intolerable and it's still there.
0: Let's have a listen to Vince Tao here. He is one of the activists down in the neighborhood who is calling for the tents and structures to remain where they are. Let's listen and I'll get your thoughts.
1: The city is escalating its violence on the individuals who most need care in this city. This is called banishment.
0: Okay, so he says they're being banished from the neighborhood. Where are these people supposed to go?
3: Well, I think we've seen already that several different people, including Premier E B, have said there are shelter spaces. They've been working to get shelter spaces. Some of these people don't want to go, and there's no question shelters are not where they should be. There's some that are really not uh, anywhere near as uh, hospitable, as, as quality-oriented uh, as they should be, but... Um, I don't think you can say that having someone on a tent on a sidewalk next to an SRO with a propane tank to heat it uh, and cook and do whatever they're doing uh, is a safe situation. And so, you know, I, I mean, I, I think like most taxpayers, I'm sitting there thinking, like, solve the problem, solve the problem. And it's not us, uh, up to the taxpayers to tell the mayor and council and the city staff and police exactly how to do it. But there's no question. It, it's it's absolutely uh, an intolerable situation there and it is, as you said and <clears throat> Sean Noir tried to deflect from it but uh, we've had all sorts of crimes going on, we have a, a guy who's stabbed to death on, on, outside his Starbucks uh, with a, his three-year-old yeah. and wife watching um, yes, there is a lot of crime there and a lot of the people who are victims of crime are the people living in those tents as well so it's yeah, just, right. just absolutely got to go
4: Finding a decent
3: place where you can actually
4: afford to live uh, is a challenge for too many British Columbians. In fact, it has become a crisis.
0: As Premier David Eby speaking yesterday in Vancouver as he lays out the province's affordable housing plan. A lot in there. Much of it was announced previously and some crucial details missing as well. We've got an anti-flipping tax in there. If you sell a property within two years of buying it, potentially... You're exposed to that tax, new density rules, up to four units of housing to be built on a single family lot, secondary suites legal everywhere and forgivable loans to build a secondary suite in your home. Got Dylan Kruger standing by to discuss. Let's listen to more of the David Eby here. Here he is talking
4: about the goal of this plan. Our plan will create a lot more of these middle-class homes through provincial zoning rules, faster permitting, less red tape, and more incentives. And our plan will create more rental housing stock by making it easier and legal for people to rent out secondary and basement suites across the province.
0: Okay, will the plan work? Let's discuss now with my guest, Delta City Councillor Dylan Kruger. Very pleased to welcome him back. Councillor, thank you for coming on today. Mike, thanks for having me. Okay, Dylan, you've been calling for aggressive measures here to get more housing built, more affordable housing on the market. What did you think of the announcement yesterday? Uh, I was really excited about it. I think, on balance,
2: it's a really good step in the right direction. Um, What I've been saying for a number of years uh, on your show, Mike, is that this housing crisis uh, will only be resolved by a drastic increase in supply. To tackle the supply deficit, we need to address municipal permitting processes and zoning reforms. Uh, so what I'm most excited about in this plan uh, is, is the opportunity for, for zoning reform for municipalities, uh, ensuring that uh, on a single-family lot you can build a duplex, a triplex, uh, or a fourplex, uh, legalizing secondary suites everywhere in B.C. It's crazy to me that there's still cities that don't allow secondary suites, uh, and also a commitment to work to standardize the approval process across the board. Those are big measures that I'm optimistic uh, will make a difference.
0: Okay, let's listen to the Premier here talking about the, these zoning changes that you just referenced here. So a lot of the housing base in our province continues to be those single-family zoned neighbourhoods. Who doesn't want to live in a, in a home like that? That's the dream for a lot of people, but we need more housing. So the province saying they will allow, as you said, up to four four housing units on a single Lot uh, you will get. You're going to get resistance from some people in some of these neighborhoods. Now, here's the question. And he was asked this yesterday. How is this going to work? Like, are you going to bring the hammer down on municipalities and force them to allow this? Here's what he had to say. Then I'll get your thoughts.
4: Let's listen. The rezoning, which will be a provincial law, it will establish base standards across the province. Uh, it will be a requirement, a province-wide standard, uh, to make sure that it works as intended. Uh, we're going to need to engage with municipalities. Okay, so this is going to
0: be a provincial law. They'll have to work with the municipalities. Dylan, you're a city councillor. Do you understand how this is going to work? Uh, No,
2: the short answer, no. And we're going to have to wait until the fall to see, you know, what the legislation actually looks like. Uh, You know, for me, I think it's a good idea in theory. There's other mayors and councillors that think it's a terrible idea in theory. But at the end of the day, we're going to have to see the legislation to understand practically how this will work and how it will gel uh, with our existing zoning laws. Uh, but what I will say is this: under the current system, basically, uh, home, uh, pr- prospective home buyers and people that are looking for a place to rent have two choices. They can go for a single-family home that is drastically out of reach uh, for all, except for those who are very, very fortunate to have some family wealth or have done well for themselves. Uh, or you're looking at at a at a condo building, at a high-rise building. Uh, on an arterial those are fine housing options for some but not for everybody we need uh, more depth and breadth of housing options and we need to finally unlock the vast majority of the neighborhoods in our region uh, that have been stuck in time capsules for a number of decades this will allow cities to grow naturally like they have done uh, for thousands of years Um, we need to we need to see the natural growth and evolution of our cities come back.
0: What about some of these neighborhoods where there has been concerns raised about the lack of infrastructure to be able to service, uh, a massive increase in density? Do you have the, the, the sewer capacity? Are there enough schools in the, in the neighborhood? Where are people going to park their car? Like You're going to put four homes on a single lot now. Is it going to be Carmageddon on these side streets? Your thoughts. Yeah, so a few different things. I mean,
2: we've got a hierarchy of needs in our communities, and I really believe the right to safe and adequate housing is the most important of those needs. It doesn't negate other challenges that we have. I think the province has been clear that they need to come along and support municipalities to build the infrastructure to accommodate uh, extra people who are coming, whether we like it or not. We know that with the federal immigration targets, you know, we're expecting a million more people in this region in the next 20 years. So they're going to come. Those challenges are going to be there are we going to have the housing for them when they do come? Uh, I'm at the UBCM housing summit right now in Vancouver, where I just heard minister yeah. Callon speak. Uh, and I think that's recognized. Like we have more work to do on infrastructure, but that doesn't negate our housing challenges.
0: Okay. Let's talk a little bit about the secondary suites. Now this is interesting. Like some municipalities, it, it is still illegal to have a basement suite in a home. David Eby saying yesterday, these secondary suites will be allowed. They will be legal everywhere in the province, and I thought, interestingly, he also talked about making forgivable loans available to homeowners if they want to build a suite in their home to rent out. You'd be eligible to get some forgivable loans here. There's a lot of unanswered questions about how this this loan is going to work. He was asked about that yesterday. Here's David E.B. again on these secondary suite loans for homeowners. Let's listen.
4: It's the same with the loan for people to uh, open up a secondary suite in their home. Uh, Who our partners will be? Credit unions and banks? Will government deliver it directly? What will work best for people uh, in terms of the actual programming? So there's work to do.
0: Yeah, there's work to do. And there's some questions to answer here and some details to be spelled out to people about how this is going to work. Dylan Kruger, your thoughts on this. Sound like a good idea to you?
2: Yeah, and again, the devil will be in the details, but one of the biggest challenges we have uh, in municipalities is enforcement around illegal suites. Um, illegal suites do crop up all the time, and, and especially when they're not allowed. Uh, you still get suites, but they're, they're unsafe. Uh, they don't meet code. Uh, they're fire hazards, and that could put uh, tenants at risk. So I'm very supportive of measures that will support people legalizing potentially illegal suites, uh, and to do that, there is a cost, uh, an upfront cost to do that. We want to create opportunities to legalize suites, which makes them safe and it allows municipalities to track them. So uh, I know that cost is a barrier to a lot of people. So in, in theory, I, I think that's great, but we'll, we'll have to see more details when they come out.
0: Okay, anti-flipping tax uh, contained in this announcement yesterday. Again, this is kind of a re-announcement of something the government talked about earlier. So if you purchase and resell a home, A residential home within two years, you're potentially liable to this this flipping tax. Here's David Eby talking on that point yesterday. Let's listen.
4: If you are holding a home right now that you intend to flip, uh, if you are thinking about buying a home for the purposes of flipping it, the message today is that this tax is coming. It will cost you money. Uh, So uh, stop uh, engaging in that activity. Homes are for British Columbians to live in in this province.
0: Delta Councillor Dylan Kruger, your thoughts.
2: Yeah, that one's probably good politics, but I don't think that's going to do anything to solve the housing crisis. I mean, if we're looking for additional tax, tax revenue, if, if that's the goal, if it's that we've decided that, that selling a house within one or two years of buying it is, is a bad thing and we'd like to discourage that behavior, then okay, fine. But if the goal is to address the housing crisis and make housing more affordable, I, I, don't, see, I don't see how that will be helpful.
0: Right. Do you see a situation here where some municipalities may resist some of these changes? Maybe they don't want to allow four plexes in single-family zone neighborhoods. Maybe they don't want basement suites. Maybe they're concerned about housing and 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 parking and that kind of thing, and they don't want to do this. Would the government then have to bring the hammer down? Is this like, do you have any any concerns around the province kind of taking over local jurisdiction and authority? I know some councils will have that challenge
2: and they you know, believe that they, are, they should be the final authority on these decisions. It's important to remember that municipalities are creatures of the provinces and we are, we are creatures of the local government act and the community charter. So the province gets to dictate the powers that we can or cannot have. One of the biggest challenges we've had in the last several decades is municipalities that have not been able to deliver housing quickly enough uh, or 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 enough of it. So I, I I'm supportive of, of the province taking this direction. Um, we, we, we need to build the housing and that means some, some bold decisions, but certainly not everyone will be comfortable with that.
0: Let's talk about one of BC's most dangerous highways now. I'm talking about Highway 5 near Clearwater. And we've talked about this stretch of road before, especially with some of the tragic and fatal accidents we've seen along this stretch of highway recently and some of the really scary driving that goes on, particularly by truckers along this stretch of Highway 5 in British Columbia. If you have seen the viral video that has come out recently about the large semi-truck on highway five crossing over a double yellow line to make an illegal pass that is a hair-raising video near miss on this highway where there have been many many fatal accidents we're going to talk about that that is just one incident out of many on this particular stretch of highway that has local officials speaking out i've got clearwater mayor merlin blackwell standing by to discuss first have a listen to this report from global news you hear the the voice of the mayor in this report here let's listen This is dangerous. This is crazy how bad this has gotten.
1: It is another example of reckless and appalling driving behavior. A semi-truck captured on dash cam video attempting a pass over a double solid yellow. You can see the semi moves into oncoming traffic before signaling and attempting to get back into the lane.
5: This is horrifying. We've had this non-stop up on our section of Highway 5. This has got to stop. Um, people have died people will continue
0: to die okay we've talked about this particular stretch of highway before and the risky reckless driving continuing along there let's discuss it now with my guest merlin blackwell the mayor of clearwater very pleased to welcome him back mayor blackwell thanks for coming on today thanks for having
5: me always glad to talk to you
0: I appreciate it a lot. Let's get our bearing straight here, because Highway 5 is, is a very long highway. Which, which which stretch of highway are we talking about here where there's this dangerous activity is taking place?
5: So this is the stretch from Kamloops to Jasper. Basically, it's the major route from the Vancouver ports uh, to the northern oil field in Edmonton. So there's a lot of heavy-duty du- industrial traffic on this highway. But the stretch that we're talking about that gets really dangerous is the section from Kamloops up towards Vailmont and across the border, uh, where it crosses the border into Alberta. And, and this highway is one-lane highway uh, for the vast majority. Maybe 10% of it has two lanes in each direction, but the vast majority are over 130 kilometres in one stretch. The equivalent of driving from Burnaby to Hope is one lane in each direction. And it, it's completely understandable that people get frustrated, but the, the driving behaviour is absolutely insane here.
0: Yeah, now we, as we heard described in that report by Global News, we've got this sort of hair-raising video of this very large semi-trailer truck crossing over a double yellow line, so totally illegal uh, passing on this highway here. Can you describe that? Like, we heard your voice there in that report about how horrified you were about this video. Can you tell me your concerns here? What, What did you see in that video, and what is your concern here?
5: Well, there's lots of things going on there. That section of the highway is one of the rare spots that has a passing lane that this person could do bad behavior in. Um, Every single vehicle other than that driver in that video was a local. I knew the driver of the low bed. I knew the driver in the white car in that video. And I knew the driver in that logging truck. These people are trying to kill us. Um, You know, I got a call this morning just like an hour ago from uh, another regulatory agency that looks after these things in another province. And I'm really hoping, you know, they're, they're now investigating the owner of the trailer uh, in this instance. And I'm really, you know, if I can't get it out of Farnworth and Evie, maybe I can get it out of Dougie Ford and his buddies.
0: (laughs) Okay. How long has this been going on? Like, you know, as have you seen an increase in dangerous driving in this stretch of highway recently, or has this been going on for years? This has been
5: going on for years, but it's definitely escalating. There are definitely problems with the shipping industry on deadlines and people racing to get from, you know, loading dock to loading dock. And I think that's the big change here. There needs to be a deep look into the shipping industry and the deadlines they set, and then also the experience of some of these drivers. I mean, I think we've deregulated too far, and, and Ward Samer's talked about that a lot. But I can sit down at a coffee table, and somebody will tell me another story. It is a daily occurrence that somebody tells me another near-miss incident. Um, and it's not just coming up because these videos are coming up. Um, it's because it, it happens so often here that we just take it for granted that somebody's going to try to kill us on the highway on a daily basis.
6: Yeah.
0: Speaking of Merlin Blackwell, the mayor of Clearwater, about the dangerous conditions on Highway 5. Now, you mentioned Ward Stamer here, one of your fellow mayors. He is the mayor of Barrier BC in the region. He has also been speaking out about this particular stretch of highway. He's been on the show before. Let me play a clip here for you, Merlin, get your thoughts on it. So here is your fellow mayor, Ward Stamer, here talking about the need for mandatory dash cams in trucks. Would that make things safer? Let's listen.
2: Mandatory dash cams. I think it would be another tool in the toolbox that we could we could add very quickly I know there's progressive trucking firms right now that have already implemented dash cams years ago, and I just think it would be an effective way to not only make the truckers more accountable, but also we'd have more anecdotal evidence if we did have a crash to know exactly
5: what happened.
0: Okay, so a lot of trucks already have dash cams equipped in their in their vehicles, but if you made it mandatory... Do you think that would make any difference? Like, I guess his argument is if it would increase accountability, like if the driver knows they're always being basically videoed on their driving habits, that maybe they'd drive more safely. Do you think that's the I think case? It, I think it's one of many tools. I
5: think it's going to give the evidence to enforcement. But I'm, like, looking at Brenda, Brenda Lockdown in Surrey, the mayor of Surrey, want to get rid of her RCMP. I'll take four tomorrow. Um, If there are four RCMP officers that want to do highway patrol or or general duty in Clearwater, I'll come down and I'll move you up with my own trailer. Um, You know, (laughs) we're we're short on this stuff, but the evidence is important. And I I agree with Ward that the dash cams are important, important, but we also need the commitment from the provincial government to have the RCMP officers permanently in place, um, along with CVSC and reforms to the coroner service as well, um, so that we don't have this pent up. Uh, backlog of trucks on the highway when uh, when we're dealing with a fatal situation or a, a situation that needs investigation. There are so many factors in this, but, uh, you know, at the core of all of it is it's a one-way lane in each direction highway that goes on for far too long without any, you know, major safety improvements in the last 40 years.
0: Okay, there are also calls for speed limiters in trucks. So this would be adjustments to a truck to actually prevent it from speeding and be mechanically uh, limited on how fast the truck could go, and is this something that should be considered so let 's have a listen to Ward Stamer here again. This is the mayor of barrier BC on an earlier show on speed limiters in trucks let 's listen
2: uh, they 're talking about implementing speed uh, limiters. That was another thing that Minister uh, Fleming mentioned about. Most of the new trucks now with the computerized system that they have in their engines they could they could be implemented tomorrow done very easily as well and i believe minister fleming is trying to get that implemented as well is for us to make that lawful that you know that these trucks can only go so fast
0: okay so could you do that do you think that is a solution that you bring use technology to slow the trucks down your thoughts yeah for sure, um,
5: speed limiters, but that's an industry-wide thing. That's a lot of work. Uh, variable speed zones has been brought up. I'd compare a lot of sections of this highway to the old Sea to Sky before the improvements for the Olympics. Um, so you get that sort of windy against the rock bluff situations there. So variable speed zones where you, you force the speed down in those areas, plus the enforcement to back it up with tickets. I think that's a quicker solution. But long term, if the if we can't fix the trucking industry to smarten up how uh, the behavior is, or retrain or re-regulate, then mandatory dash cams, cams and speed regulators, sure, bring it on. If we can't get them to do it voluntarily, let's force them to do it.
0: Right. What is the speed limit there along that stretch of Highway 5? Is its it 120? Is it or What is the limit there? Oh, God, no. Uh, it used okay. to be 90.
5: <laughs> they bumped it up to 100 in, in most stretches there. It, there's no way you could safely do it um, in a lot of those stretches. Even even 100 is pushing it for most of the year okay. uh, with the ice and the shade.
0: Okay, I'm probably thinking of the Coquihalla or the uh, 120
4: yeah. uh, speed no, limit no.
5: there. Yeah.
0: So let's put this in
5: perspective for people down there. This highway is about as wide as, say, you know, Sperling or something in Burnaby. It's not. It's, uh, it's, it's narrower than Broadway with the construction going on. Um, this yeah. is how narrow this is. Uh, it's windier. I can't even think of a super windy road on the coast other than the old sea to sky. I grew up in, in Westminster, you know, with the Hills and things like that. A lot of that regulates speed as well. Cause there's a lot of Hills, a lot of stuff like that, but you go miles and miles without any opportunity to see around a corner or, you know, get off the roadway to, to even take a break. So it, it's, You know, it's a nail-biter. And we're about to see 2 million tourists coming down this highway for this summer with this extra truck traffic that we seem to be seeing as well. So we have a recipe for this disaster happening uh, coming forward here if we don't get on this quick.
0: Speaking of that truck traffic, do you think that is the problem, especially when it comes to drivers who are trying to deliver their loads on time? Like, I've heard about guys who will drive when they're tired, drive when they're sleepy, uh, speed unnecessarily because they're trying to they're trying to make their schedule they're trying to meet their schedule to get their stuff delivered is that going on?
5: Yeah, hearing it from the tow truck drivers, hearing it from the truckers. I'm hearing from the retired truckers hearing it for the RCP. That's a huge factor in this. Another huge factor in this is uh, Trans Mountain Pipeline hasn't started pumping oil yet, so a lot of uh, these loads that are going on trucks would normally be on uh, cubes on the trains. But there's no space on the tracks right now because they're still hauling oil cars by the thousands. Oh. Right. So, yeah. okay. so what about, Trans Mountain? Yeah.
0: What what about yep. training of drivers? Like you touched briefly on this earlier, and this is another topic we've talked about on the show. Do truck drivers in British Columbia receive adequate training on safely driving these rigs? Your thoughts?
5: Uh no, uh definitely not in uh, the conditions that we see in the interior. I had a story recently from uh, a local here who helped uh, <laughs> pulled up to a truck to help a trucker put chains on his truck uh, and oh. noticed that the trucker had put the chains on the trailer. So anybody who understands the mechanics of a vehicle, you need your, trains, your chains on the drive wheels, not on the ones that are standing still. This is the <laughs> level of understanding of what you're dealing with that some of these drivers have, and it's not all of them. Um, But, you know, hearing off the record from law enforcement and from the tow truck companies and things like that, it is consistently some of the same companies over and over with this same level of driver professionalism. And that's terrifying because there are a ton of truckers out there that are fantastic drivers that have been doing this professionally for a long time. Um, And and giving the whole industry a bad name is not what the intention is here. It's it's. Get everybody to the level of those people, not drag everybody down to the people that are, you know, not so good at this.
0: Okay, Mayor Blackwell, last question for you. What should be at the top of the to-do list here, in your opinion? Like, what are you calling, what sort of reforms do you think is are the most important?
5: Right now, first thing, uh, fully stock my uh, RCMP Highway Patrol up through this valley. Uh, keep the CVSE pressure up to some level, because enforcement is working on slowing some of these people down. Uh, I think a long-term enforcement plan is number one. Variable speed zones is number two. Long-term, let's reconstruct this highway.
0: Thanks for coming on today. I appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you for having me. Let's talk about high-tech auto thefts. We talked about this yesterday on the show. April is Auto Crime Enforcement Month and police in British Columbia want to make people aware of sophisticated auto theft scams, like auto thefts in a high-tech fashion on the rise. The bad guys getting a lot smarter and more sophisticated too and stealing late model vehicles. They know how to break into your vehicle. They know how to work around your anti-theft computer system. They can make a duplicate of your key fob they know how to smuggle your vehicle out of the country too. a lot of these stolen vehicles end up in the black market around the world. Also check this out. Catalytic converter theft on the rise. Why is this happening? Why do, why do these thieves steal catalytic converters from vehicles? Police now responding to it. Police and ICBC, new program, especially in Surrey. One of the problems is if you have a catalytic converter stolen from your vehicle, it's difficult to trace. So here's what they do now. If you go to a participating auto repair shop in in Surrey, you can have your vehicle identification number printed on your catalytic converter. That might help police in the investigation. Got Brian Gast standing by to discuss all this. Have a listen to this here first. This is Karen Klein spokesperson with ICBC on catalytic converter thefts and what vehicle owners can do about it.
6: Right now, catalytic converters are not identifiable when they're stolen. So there are uh, different mechanical shops within Surrey that uh, have jumped on board to support this program. And they will, if you're in for a service, uh, etch the last eight digits of your VIN number on there.
0: Okay, so if you go into service in one of these participating garages in Surrey, you could have the uh, part of your vehicle ID number imprinted on your catalytic converter. Could that foil a theft? Let's discuss now with my guest, Brian Gast. Brian is the Vice President, Investigative Services, Equité Association. They're a nonprofit. They help insurance companies in Canada fight fraud. And I'm very pleased to welcome him. Hey, Brian, thanks for coming
6: on. Thank you very much for having me.
0: Hey, Brian, before we get into the catalytic converter thefts here, let's talk a little bit about these high-end auto thefts. Like, how quickly can thieves, if they're very sophisticated and they've got the computer gizmos, they can rip off your car very quickly, can they not?
6: They can. If they have the knowledge and the equipment, they can do it in less than 15 seconds.
0: (laughs) 15 seconds. Wow. Okay. How is that happening? Like, how are they able to do this?
6: Yeah, obviously, the, uh, the, they're taking advantage of, the, of any push-button start. Uh, push-button start uh, vehicles have the vulnerabilities. I mean, it's, a, it's an owner convenience, but uh, they're using that convenience and looking for vulnerabilities to be able to uh, bypass the system and uh, trick the vehicle uh, into starting.
0: Right, and do they have to make, a, in order to do that, do they have to make some kind of a copy of your key fob?
6: Yeah, so there's different ways of doing it. The uh, the traditional or the more, uh, the original way was the onboard diagnostic port, so you're actually plugging in a device. So that OBD port is, it's an intended purpose, is you go to the, a garage, something's wrong with your vehicle, the mechanic plugs something into your vehicle through the OBD port, and he does a diagnostic right. check. The, the criminals also have devices that they can plug into that same port and reprogram a key fob. That, me- that method takes a little bit longer, and then you get into the relay attacks where they're stealing your signal uh, from your key fob to your vehicle and uh, doing a relay attack uh, start, and uh, that is generally quicker. And then the, the scary part is there, there's new technology that's coming out that uh, is even quicker than those two that I've already mentioned. Wow,
0: that's amazing. Okay, we've come a long way from hot wiring a vehicle to, to steal a car in the old days. What about where do these stolen vehicles end up? Because I've been reading with great fascination about some of the higher end vehicles that are targeted here and then end up loaded onto container ships and shipped out of Canada for sale on the black market. Tell me about that.
6: Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, we work with our international partners and in in the international partners, law enforcement. Vehicles across Canada, out west, are uh, taken to the ports uh, throughout Canada, particularly in eastern Canada. And uh, again, these are vehicles that are being uh, targeted. Canada is being targeted. Uh, They have the mechanism to steal the vehicle. They have the mechanism to get them out of the country. And then there's a demand overseas. So it's a bad combination for Canadian vehicles. Uh, we are definitely being targeted as a nation for these vehicles. We're considered a, a source nation for stolen vehicles, which means we're getting we're exporting stolen vehicles. We're not importing stolen vehicles. And uh, that's where we're working with all our partners to try and rem- remedy that.
0: Okay, I find that very interesting. Are these vehicles more valuable in these overseas markets? Is that why they're being smuggled out of the country?
6: Yeah. So, uh, I mean, uh, organized crime is alive and well, and uh, they're behind the majority of these crimes. Uh, It's a lucrative market. They're taking advantage of the last few years where supply chain issues have been a problem. Uh, Very difficult to get new and used vehicles. And uh, they're capitalizing on that. And uh, there is a demand overseas for these vehicles. And uh, it's a way to get these vehicles uh, into that lucrative market for these organized crime groups. And that's the other important thing. This is not a victimless crime. This is These are organized crime groups that are funding uh, themselves through this, uh, not only organized crime, but terrorism as well. So it's a a significant problem.
0: Uh, Yeah, for sure. Speaking of Brian Gast, Ecute Association, Brian's an expert on vehicle fraud and investigations. Okay, Brian, let me ask you about uh, catalytic converters. So what is the deal with this? You've got... The RCMP and ICBC in British Columbia are reporting a 350% increase in catalytic converter thefts in our province over the last three years. Why is this happening?
6: Yeah, and I can, I, I'm retired police as well, and I can say in the beginning of my career, catalytic converters were being stolen back then, but they were being stolen just for the part itself. The The, train, the trend that you're starting to see now is these organized crime groups are being are capitalizing on this market for the for the precious metals that are contained in these uh, in these catalytic converters, so the platinum, the palladium, and the rhodium uh, they fluctuate in price, but uh, they're all significant values and I'm not talking about large amounts of uh, of these precious metals in each catalytic converter uh, they're trace amounts, but again in volume it, it adds up to a lot of money for these groups.
0: Wow, that's amazing. And are they easy to rip off? Like if someone crawls under a vehicle late at night, is it easy to remove a catalytic converter from a vehicle, typically?
6: Sadly, it is. I mean, the higher the vehicle, the easier it is. They don't have to jack it up. But, uh, again, they're not being careful in how they get the the, uh, catalytic converter off. They're just using uh, power saws to to get it off. And that's really why um, reporting any suspicious activity to your local police is always very recommended. Uh, never take uh, things into your own hands. Never put yourself in harm's way. Really reporting that suspicious activity. And what you mentioned earlier on your show about identifying the catalytic converter, because as they come out uh, th- through through production, they are mostly not identifiable. And that's the problem. You can have a whole load of, of catalytic converters and trying to find out where they came from is the problem. So now that they're starting right. to be identified, w- will help
0: talking about high end vehicle theft and also catalytic converter theft ICBC wants to make you aware of this let's listen to another comment here from Karen Klein ICBC and she's got some advice here on how to make it more difficult for your catalytic converter to be stolen from your vehicle let's listen
6: parking in well lit areas uh where there's a lot of pedestrian traffic uh try to park your vehicle uh in a garage or behind a fence, if possible, when you're at home, try to park tight up against curves. Try to make it really difficult for that person to get under your vehicle.
0: Okay, we got Brian Gast back there. Brian, what do you think of that advice? Sort of park in a way that it makes it more <laughs> makes it more difficult for someone to crawl under your vehicle, steal your catalytic converter.
6: Yeah, I mean, really, anything that makes uh, adds time to what they're trying to do. Uh, Parking well lit areas make it more difficult to get to get under. Um, obviously. If it's it's a regular vehicle where they have to jack it up, uh, they need to act quickly. But again, this can be done very, very quickly. They're very good at it. I've seen uh, this in action, and it does not take them long to to do what they need to do.
0: Ryan, thanks a lot for coming on with your expertise today. I appreciate it. Okay, thank you. Bill Nelson making the big announcement. Canadian astronaut Jeremy Hansen set to go part of the first uh, human's moon mission in 52 years. So, Jeremy Hansen, a CF 18 pilot. From London, Ontario, he will join three American astronauts on the Artemis II mission uh, to the moon. They will travel to the moon and orbit the moon and return to Earth. Ten-day mission expected in late... 2024, perhaps later, no firm date on the mission, but boy, that is an exciting announcement there yesterday. Let's discuss now with my guest, Dr. Gordon Oz Ozinski, Professor of Planetary Geology, Western University, and he is an astronaut trainer. Oz, very nice to have you on here.
7: (laughs) Thanks for having me on the show, Mike.
0: You, you bet! Thanks for doing it. It's, it's very cool to speak to an astronaut trainer. What did you think of that announcement yesterday? Boy, what an exciting moment! Oh, it
7: sure was. It was you know exciting, nerve wracking uh, for sure. You know, I was uh, tuned in at eight o'clock on the uh, sorry eleven o'clock Eastern on the dot when they started the uh, you know the, the live cast online and. Uh, you know, waiting for the introductions to see yeah uh, which Canadian would be selected, but I'm um, so happy for Jeremy. He's been waiting a long time for this and a long time to fly in space.
0: Okay, was that so was that a surprise yesterday that it was we knew a Canadian would be part of this mission, right, but we didn't know which Canadian would be named yesterday? Is that correct?
7: Exactly, yeah. Nobody, I mean, they had obviously had found out a few days before, but uh, nobody outside, you know, a close circle knew which U.S. astronauts or which Canadian astronaut were going to fly. So they kept it all secret and uh, announced it in that big event down at the Johnson Space Center yesterday.
0: Isn't that exciting? So let's let's talk a little bit about your work as an, an astronaut trainer. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Because I know that you guys train at a at a site in Canada that has kind of some lunar surface qualities to it, right? Sure, and I
7: think I might need some new business cards to put that first. Um, But yeah, so, you know, I'm a professor here at the University of Western Ontario, and so, you know, I teach undergraduate and graduate students. uh, But over the past decade, uh, I've had, you know, the honor and the, the exciting opportunity to help train astronauts. And so it actually started with Jeremy. Back in 2011, so not long after he and David Saint-Jacques became astronauts after their two-year basic training, Um, during that two-year time, they'd received a little bit of geology training in the classroom. Uh, But the Canadian Space Agency approached me about taking, um, eventually both of them, but uh, Jeremy to start with, to the Canadian Arctic, and so. The goal was, you know, sort of threefold. Uh, First off, you know, neither Jeremy or David or many of the astronauts have any training in geology. So it's kind of a, you know, a geology crash course. But the best place to do geology is really what we say in the field. It's out there in nature looking at the rocks. And so that's kind of number one. Number two is that the sites uh, I typically work at are meteorite impact craters. So these are relatively uncommon on Earth. Um, these are sites where asteroids and comets have struck the Earth in the past. But if you look up at the moon, you know, even on a clear night or if you've seen any images of the moon, this is the dominant landform on the moon. So this is what Jeremy will fly over, and this is what the Artemis three astronauts on that mission after him will be exploring. And so we then get into, you know, the, the, the details of looking at meteorite impact craters and then the other aspect is, you know, just working up in these very remote parts of the Arctic. You know, we're remote, um, a long way away from any help. Uh, we're in small teams, and we're, you know, this is absolutely not the same extreme as space, but it is, you know, there's approximate that uh, kind of um, uh, kind of situation that the astronauts will encounter as they fly to the moon.
0: Well, wow, that's really amazing, and you mentioned that you've worked with jeremy hansen canada's astronaut selected yesterday for this mission can you tell me a little a little bit about him boy he certainly did canada proud there yesterday i was very impressed
7: yeah he did absolutely and you know to me that's jeremy uh through and through um you know very humble uh didn't i, mean, I don't think at all focused on him on himself he talked about you know how proud he was for you know, the country, um, and he's made, you know, a lot of comments about that in the past little while. So um, that that does speak to him as a person. Uh, He's, you know, definitely a very proud Canadian um, and uh, is, you know, I think proud proud to be the flag bearer for Canada, right? So he's going to take all of the, the hopes and dreams of Canadians along with him as he flies to the moon in a couple of years' time.
0: Uh, isn't that something? And do you expect to be working with him again in the future or will you be working exclusively with NASA now in advance of this mission?
7: Uh it's I certainly hope so. Uh there's no specifics yeah. yet, you know, this is everything is moving quite rapidly as you can imagine. You know, they just found out in the last couple of weeks that they'll be on this crew. There's a lot of work to be done uh to get the, the spacecraft ready and the crew trained for Artemis 2. Um, you know, at some point in the next couple of years, likely before this mission goes, they'll name the crew for the surface mission, Artemis 3, which comes next. And so, um, yeah, you know, hopefully I'll be involved in providing training where I can. Um, I'll actually be going down in June to help train the latest class who are not even astronauts yet, too. So that's going to be exciting. You know, there's no Canadians in this class, but there are U.S. astronauts and two United Arab Arab Emirate astronauts who are currently in training down at the NASA Johnson Space Center. So I'm excited to be heading there in June and uh, like find out more then about plans for the next year or two.
0: Awesome. speaking to Canadian astronaut trainer Gordon Ozinski, Western University, Jeremy Hansen named as part of the Artemis II mission to the moon by NASA yesterday. Is there a chance, like, this This moon mission, they will not land on the surface of the moon. They are to travel to the moon and then come back. And then the next, is it the next mission after that, where they expect astronauts to actually touch down on the surface of the moon?
7: Absolutely, that is the current plan. So, you know, it is ambitious. Uh, it's actually more ambitious than Apollo. You know, they had uh, a whole series of missions during, you know, testing various aspects, and so, you know, we had Artemis One. If uh, the listen, you know, listeners remember back to November, the first ever launch of this Orion spacecraft and uh, the big NASA rocket. There are no humans on board. Uh, we then jumped straight to Jeremy's mission, which is the first time humans will go in that spacecraft, which is you know, pretty pretty staggering. And they'll yeah. uh, you know launch. They'll orbit the Earth for a couple of times, test everything out, and then head off for the moon and as you say they're not going to land but they're going to do like a big slingshot uh so in doing so you know even though people call this a bit of a test they will actually go past the moon and go further than any human has ever gone from earth so you know they won't land but they're going to break some records on Artemis 2 and then if all goes well the next mission is straight to the surface so it's it's an ambitious series of missions which uh, you know hopefully will all go according to
0: plan. Well, it's certainly very exciting, and uh, it's very cool that you're a part of it. Thank you very much for coming on to talk about it today.
7: Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, hopefully it's uh, exciting for all Canadians.